And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You may know Mary Catherine Hamm as the provocative, often funny, conservative commentator on CNN, or as a conservative writer. Uh, This week, she was also a uh, fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and we sat down to talk about conservatism in the era of Trump and the upcoming midterm elections. Mary Catherine Hamm, so good to see you here and at the Institute of Politics. Thank you for having We're glad, me. Glad to have you. I know you've you've actually written about um, the uh, need for divergent voices on campuses, and specifically, you wrote about and something that happened here at the Institute of Politics. So it's good to have you here so you can witness for yourself what goes on. Yes, here. I mean, I'm happy to be the divergent voice. I'm happy to be among the divergent voices. <laughs> yes, so, uh, we'll say among. I don't want you to shoulder that burden all by yourself. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, uh, I was interested to learn that you are from a long line of journalists. Uh, as a former journalist, that caught my eye. Yes, uh, I'm a fourth generation newspaper journalist, specifically. My great. Do you want to explain what newspapers are? <laughs> I know, for, right? For our younger listeners, I actually, I actually graduated from college with a a journalism degree, specifically in newspaper journalism, because I could really see the future, guys. Yeah, exactly. I <laughs> knew what was coming. Um, <laughs> no, my my great grandfather started a paper in beautiful Pitts, Georgia. Um, way back in the day. And then my grandfather was a sports reporter for him. And then my father dabbling in politics here and there. He was the press secretary for the governor of Alabama when I was born, but he was uh, trained. James, as, is that, yes, yeah. correct. Um, but he was trained as a newspaper man. And my, most of my life was a newspaper man and an editor. And, uh, and then I worked at a small North Carolina newspaper for a couple of years before. Your dad, uh, tell me about that little, um, that, that four year, Period when he uh, when he left journal you know when I left journalism I got lectured about um, you made if you go into politics you're going to make yourself impure you can never come back um, but yeah he, he managed to pull it off well and, and he did he did do a cleansing round I believe of sort of grad school at at oh, Duke and then re-entered right um, but it was a uh, it was a campaign that uh, my parents still speak so fondly of um, and it was a uh, 1979, 1980 in Alabama. So the Democratic primary was basically all that existed. Um, And they were backing Fob James and working with Fob James, who was sort of taking on the Wallace machine in Alabama. And they talk about it as just one of the most exhilarating times of their lives. It was shoestring. You know, my mom was like carting around paper campaign materials to different newspapers and to constituents uh, here and there all crisscrossing the entire state in their broken down car. Um, and they just had a blast and loved it. So they, uh, there was a lot of politics in your house. They talked about it. You, This was not an interest that you developed independently of them. Yeah. So it's interesting because when he, when my dad did go to grad school, it was for political science work. Um, so one would think that we were a very political family, but we actually weren't that political per se. It was it was more of a news junkie family. It was the you knew who who the actors were, you stayed abreast of what the issues were. My dad watched the news. We got several newspapers a day because he had to have his own newspaper and the competing newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was always sort of informed, but there wasn't a ton of ideology. In the house when they when they got into the Fob James campaign, uh, what was it that motivated them? Was Wallaceism? Was it was it about race? Was it about corruption? What what was it about? Yeah, I think I think sort of taking on the old boys was was the object, and uh, they were fascinated by this new cast of characters that had come in to run. Uh, Fob's campaign. They had a lot of faith in him, uh, entrepreneur, interesting, charming guy, former football player in Alabama. Um, and I think there was just energy around it. And there were young people around that campaign. And it seemed an impossible task, mm-hmm. I think. And so it was very sort of romantic to take this on. Um, and to this day, we hear stories in the in the Ham household about about that campaign. So you were uh, you were raised uh, in Durham. Yes. Um, 
Not a bastion of conservatism. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I joke that um, they made me what, my, what I am uh, or that everybody back home is like, she was such a nice girl growing up. What <laughs> happened? Um, no, I think I have, a, I have a very serious contrarian streak. It is not why I believe what I believe, but I had from a very young age looked around and was like, it feels like everyone here is saying the same things all the time and believing the same things. And I thought, there's probably other things. And so I kind of wanted to test those waters and I like to poke around and see what I could find out and ask questions. And I think that was, that was part of my growing up. I also um, went to public schools and I think didn't realize it was a, an ideological or political um, realization or experience, but I just, I experienced public policy firsthand that wasn't working real well for the people that I was in school with or for me. And I thought... Schools weren't good in Durham? Um, I don't want to bash Durham, Durham at all because it's a wonderful special place. Um, but yeah, there were, there were, it was rough in our, in our public schools. And I don't think, uh, you know, a kid like, a kid like me or my brothers who had my parents supplementing our education did fine, but I saw it failing other kids. Um, and I just thought, are there different ways of doing things? And that was really the whole thought. It, I didn't go much past that because I was eight. Um, <laughs> but I think it made it made the wheels start turning. It would have been cool if you could have solved that problem when you were eight, though. <laughs> they might have but skipped yeah, you a grade if you could do it, that. It is an, it's an unorthodox way to come to conservatism because I was in, you know, majority-minority I wouldn't say inner city is probably more of a big city term, but Durham, that's where we were. We were, we were in a majority black neighborhood and, and community and, um, and lots of university people, I assume. Yes. So, so, uh, liberal professors in the, in the neighborhood as well. Um, so that kind of environment where, uh, uh, where I just kind of wondered what else was out there. And how'd you find what else was out there? Um, so I think, you know, my parents, like I said, there, there wasn't an ideolo- ideology pushed on us at all. There wasn't very, uh, it wasn't very defined what, what they, I knew who they voted for, basically. They were Carter delegates. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna, that, well, that's pretty revealing. <laughs> they're probably gonna be mad that I said that. Um, but they, you know, they went through a, during the Clinton years, went through a, a bit of a, a shift um, to the right, spurred partly by my dad's um, my dad's visits to the Soviet Union. Um, so it was, it was about markets. It was about free markets. So I did, I think I took Your in, dad visited the Soviet Union for yes, work, for uh, journalism, or for... Yes. Oh, my gosh. Somebody's going to start a Russia conspiracy about me. Um, he, he visited the Soviet Union uh, in, the, in the days of Glasnost to teach journalists uh, in the Soviet Union how a free press could work. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a sister city program with Kostroma Russia. And he taught himself some Russian and... Went over and and uh, and we had great friends there, and we did all sorts of cultural exchanges. Did you travel with him? I did not get to go. In fact, I still have never I've never been. Although I did study Russian in in college for a bit, didn't yeah. it? Didn't really sink in. <laughs> so no one no one who's listening will go back and investigate your travels through Russia. And no, no, met no, with that so can't on. happen. They can investigate my uh, freshman year Russian language class if they want. <laughs> I can still read Cyrillic phonetically. So if you ever need that for a party trip, all right, there you have it. You know where to, you know where to reach her. But I think that that sort of his sort of uh, embrace of free market economics and and not embrace of it because he had believed in it before, but sort of renewed sense of this is this is what makes America work. And I saw the other end of the spectrum over here. I think I took in a lot of that as a he must 12 have year old or so. Obviously also felt passionately about the importance of a free independent press. For sure. Um, and I think having those conversations with people who wanted to be journalists, uh, in Russia with people who wanted to be entrepreneurs in Russia. One of his, uh, one of our good friend, family friends became one of our good family friends, um, was just a guy in the Soviet union who had a motor and who knew how to create things that people wanted to buy, but he wasn't allowed to do that. Um, and I think seeing that sort of made my dad talk more about these principles and capitalism and the free markets and, and why they're important and free press and why these things are important. So I probably around, my middle school years was picking up more of that. How, uh, he's still around. Mm-hmm. How does he feel about the president's views on a free press? <laughs> so 
he's now uh, a retired newspaper man. And my parents uh, were cagey about Trump in the primaries, but voted for him in the uh, general election, if I think I'm correct about that. Um, and I don't know, he, he, my dad does, and I have, you know, taken in plenty of this. Um, he spent a lot of years in media. He knows that the media leans very far left and it is, he thinks it's irresponsible journalism a lot of the time. Um, now that doesn't mean he uses the same language, but (laughs) he, uh, he is very open-eyed about mistakes that journalists make. And as a former newsman, he's like, this is not how we're supposed to do things. Um, and so I think he sees it from that perspective. Plus, ideologically, he feels like people on the right are treated unfairly. Uh-huh. Well, and you share that view, I assume. Yes. Well, and and mostly, I think my, my take is more, as somebody who is in media now, uh, with, and who's somebody who, who, loves the press and has been part of the press and, and, you know, spent much of my childhood in one of the last Metro newspaper battles and just took in so much of that. Um, my take on media is more like, help me help you <laughs> to understand these people and to not make these giant mistakes that make everyone think that you're exactly what Trump is saying you are. Yeah. Right. That's, you know, that's where I am. I, I hear that. And I, and I, you know, I worry a lot about, uh, the siloing of us as a society. You know, you talk about living in a neighborhood where everybody has the same right. point of view, and we're doing more and more of that. But media is centered in these, uh, you know, in, in basically in Washington and in New York, you know, out on the coast. Uh, and there is this siloing. And I know that there's a conscious effort to break those silos down at some news organizations, but it does exist. On the other hand, there are also facts I mean, they're actually provable, demonstrable right. facts. And you, as a, a former reporter, and I want to talk about your time at the Richmond County Daily Journal, uh, but um, you dealt in facts. Your your job was to, to uh, as best as you could, obtain the truth right. and uh, report it. And uh, the, the, the president doesn't like that. Uh, that's where we get into the sort of uh, fake news. And fake news, as far as I can see, generally, yes, there is this bias that you speak of, but fake news in his book is anything that he finds unflattering. Yeah, look, I think he uses that term very loosely to apply to anything he doesn't like. I would also note that the fake news uh, term sort of originated with media starting to talk about how fake news had fueled the election. So mm-hmm. they sort of got that turned back on them by Trump by using it. But that really Usually, was fake news. There was some fake news, but I think it was overblown. They they went too far down that path themselves, and then he just turns it around on everybody and goes too far down that path as well, which is one of my issues with the Trump era is that everyone spins each other up into sort of bad actors, right? Like... Because he's acting this way doesn't mean we have to act this way, right? Because no, he's hysterical, I totally agree we don't with that. have and to I think hysterical. he kind of counts on that, honestly. Oh, he does. I mean, you yeah. see it in this campaign. I mean, he he counts on, you know, I, I said the other day that he's like the, and I know you covered a little sports, uh, he's the player who elbows an opponent and then uh, counts on the opponent elbowing him back and getting called and getting for caught, the foul. Right? And he'll be the first to say, hey, he fouled me. Uh, but so there, there is a lot of that. But I am concerned about this issue uh, of facts, you know, and... Um, well, I, I am too, but let me push back on this with the, like, you know, with the story about Nikki Haley's curtains. Yes. Well, that was not... That was a mistake. Was, it, but is it a mistake when it always goes that direction? Like, it always reflects badly on the right of center person. And Nikki Haley, frankly, is one of the great success stories of the Trump administration. And for whatever reason, someone over at the New York Times, well, actually several layers of people at the New York Times, had this giant fact wrong. And interestingly, nobody flags this until it's in the paper. It's a, it's a pretty big paper. No, I mean, with I, a lot of look, I, I said it at the time. I mean, I, it, that, was, uh, that was an egregious mistake. Uh, and newspapers make mistakes. I was a reporter. Uh, I, don't, I didn't make too many mistakes, but I'm sure I made some 
And, you know, when you do, you're suggesting that they had an agenda. No, I'm, I'm suggesting that that perhaps the fact-checking and the the gut-checking are not as rigorous when you don't mind that this person is taking I don't know, a hit. You know, um, That's <laughs> even as we speak here, there's a lot of back and forth about this Elizabeth Warren yes. uh, issue and her uh, Ancestry.com or whatever it was test. Um, and I think newspapers have scrutinized uh, or news organizations are scrutinizing that as well. But I, I already uh, agreed with you that I think that there is an unconscious bias that comes when you right. live essentially in an environment where there's very little uh, where there's very little debate. Um, the but tell let's let's talk for a second about the your experience at the Richmond County Daily Journal. You can look up many of my exciting articles on like the biggest local pumpkin while I was there. No, that I, would be timely. <laughs> this is the season. No, the uh, that was a great experience. Uh, this is one of the things that I um, I mourn about the newspaper in- industry falling off is that that job as a daily newspaper reporter in a small town is a really great job. Yeah, and it's a really great learning experience and. Too often now, I think, uh, and like I, I didn't do that much time there. I did love my time there as a Friday night. I did Friday Night Lights football. That and NASCAR. is that is the coolest thing. It was so much fun. Um, go Raiders! Uh, but <laughs> I had a blast, and you learn the town, and you learn the local government, and you learn how these wheels turn on a very local level, and then you move up, right? Yeah. Um, and now I think it would be really helpful for a lot more reporters to have I that. I could not agree like, with you more. You know, I started my experience. career in journalism right here at a little newspaper called the Hyde Park Herald, which is a weekly newspaper. And uh, I, I wrote a political column, but I, I often was called upon to do all kinds of other stories. And then I spent, before I started writing about politics, several nights, uh, several uh, years on nights at the Chicago Tribune, which was an education unto itself. Right. And um, and the reason they put me on there was they said, oh, we know you know everything about local politics, but we want you to learn how to be a reporter. And part of that, by the way, not to harp on this, was to get every to get it right, right. and to get get the facts right. But it also exposed me to a whole array of experiences and people who I never would have known which is what's great about that. Yeah, I still have a, a pretty deep attachment to that town f- for that reason. It's because I was I was only there for a short time, but I met everyone in the county. Because Rocking, I was Rockingham. All, Rockingham, North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and I still have friends there, and I still visit there. Um, and I, by the way, uh, Richmond County, a sort of quintessentially uh, Obama, Obama, Trump county. Yeah. That That is the sort of the textile industries went away it's been patching economic life together since then but not really felt things sort of on the rise and i was curious after the election i thought richmond county seems like one of those one of those counties and i looked it up and sure enough yeah that's that's what it is that's the story of that election so friday night football is that's a big a big deal i was just talking to a friend of mine who lives down in in your uh your native state of Alabama, whose son plays high school football, and he he had traveled. They had traveled a long way uh, for a game on Friday night. And he was yep. describing the scene uh, to me, and it it's as the as the TV show depicted. Oh, it uh, that TV show is by the way one of a, one of those great things that I think Red American Blue America can both equally enjoy, and it's like a nice cross cultural. Like you can learn a little bit about these towns because it really did ring true to my experiences in a Friday night. Were you always a football sports fan? Or is this? Oh yeah, I love. I've always loved sports. My dad raised us on um, on sports. I was a. Uh, he went to University of Georgia, so I was a UGA football fan, and I was a townie in Durham, so I was a Duke basketball fan. Haters, I know, whatever. <laughs> um, I earned it since yeah, 1981. Listen, I love uh, professional basketball. <laughs> so. so we always watched all kinds of sports in NASCAR. Um, so I, while I was there, I think I actually was the first woman to cover Friday Night Football. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. In, how, did, uh, <laughs> how did people feel about that? I think there was a tiny bit of skepticism, but uh, but it wasn't overt. Nobody was uh, overtly rude about it, but I think there was some, there was some, 
skeptical folks, uh, and it and it went well. <laughs> at high school level, is there a controversy about women in the locker room? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I stayed clear of that. I tried to stay mostly on the on the field, uh-huh. uh, outside the locker room, everyone. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I do remember the the athletes were extremely polite. It's a very uh, sort of small town Southern thing. They always called me Miss Ham, even though I was like three years older than them. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yes, Miss Ham. Well, I, I never got treated like that when I was a reporter. It was uh, it was a fun time. People didn't even use my real name. They had all kinds of other names for me that I I did. Share. I did cover, by the way, Danelle Ellerby, who has since gone on to win su- two Super Bowls. Very proud of that. That is that. I did a feature on him one time when he was just a skinny wide receiver in high school. You then moved on to D.C. You, at some point, you decided, obviously, that you wanted to transition into something other than daily journalism and more into the commentary. What what, what th- made you do that? So I think I mean, you're, you're clearly someone who has opinions. So. Yes. Uh, well, when I was in when I was in Rockingham working there, um, I was. I mean, I've always been sort of libertarianish conservative but definitely solidly right of center um and even in a rural north carolina newsroom i was the weirdo and so and then and i would get some knocks for it from from editors when i would write not reported pieces i didn't you know obviously don't put stuff in there but when i would write opinion pieces which to their credit they didn't encourage me to do um but i would get in some some tussles and some back and forth with, with editors about various things. And I, I just wondered, okay, if I'm moving forward, do I just keep my mouth shut about all of this forever? Because I think it will probably hurt me. Um, or do I do sports where you don't really have to talk about it? Of course, sports is, sports coverage has changed a bit since then. Yeah, no kidding. You, you basically do have to talk about it, but should I do what sports? What do you think, by the way, about the whole kneeling controversy I am, as a libertarian? Yeah, I look, I think as protests go, that's a, that's a perfectly, that's a basically respectful protest. I also think you can't be surprised that people associate the protest with the flag and the anthem when it's being done during the flag and the anthem. Like people are sort of surprised that people associate it with that instead of what they're actually protesting. Right. And I I think it's easy for people to get those wires crossed. Um, But you know, uh, this goes back to our discussion about the, president before and the sort of throwing the elbow and then i mean this was sort of a dormant issue yes colin kaepernick had been out of the league president's down in alabama he's looking for something to ignite the crowd and he 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 basically re reignited the whole uh debate and and clearly not because there was this rash of kneelings that offended him, but because he thought there was an issue there that could work for him. Yeah. I mean, he has a savant-like ability to find those things, right? And as somebody who loves both football and the anthem and the flag, uh, (laughs) all these things, uh, I'm just like, when I, when I heard him do that, I was like, well, this is going to just spin up on both sides um, and sort of make this, make this a an issue and a protest issue for anyone who was enjoying both the athletes and the whole pageantry of the thing before. Um, but yes, that's, that's who he is. That's, and I, I think, I think people who are Trump supporters and I think to some extent they are correct would say, look, there's always been a culture war on the other side. And now we got a guy who fights it. Whether he like believes the, it or not. Right. Like the Mitt Romney's of the world would be like, I ain't touching that with a 10 foot pole. Right. Right. But, but Trump does, and right. that's that's part yeah. of why he was elected. It is. Uh, I don't think anybody's mined the culture wars more effectively uh, than he has, and he's gone where nobody else has been willing to go, maybe since George Wallace uh, back in the 60s. But, um, you know, he would say, well, I won. He said, you know, that's what he says. It, it works. But that can't be the standard, can it? I mean, is it good for the country to have, in this particular case, for example, did the country benefit from uh, reigniting that? I don't know. I mean, Nike and Colin Kaepernick would say this is great. We're ha- we're having a super productive conversation about uh, about excessive force and police brutality. I don't actually think that's the case. We're not having a super productive conversation about that because it is 
it's a lot of signaling on both sides instead of an actual conversation. So I, I'm not sure that we are, but I'm not, sh- I'm not sure it's entirely Trump's fault. It's like, it's just signaling up and down on all cultural war issues yeah. on both sides. Um, uh, but no, that cannot, to me, that cannot be the standard for politics, but it is the standard for politics. Yeah. Like, no, listen, I, <laughs> that's it, one of the reasons I don't it, love it, it that much. Yeah. No, I, I you know, um, I, I worry about um, sort of the, the only value being, can it help me win? Uh, and, you know, yes, there are people on both sides who, who, are, who are guilty of that at times, but there's, you know, he, he expressly embraces that as his fundamental philosophy that whatever works, just do whatever works. He was asked by uh, Leslie Stahl the other night about about going after uh, Dr. Ford. And right. so, well, if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't have won. I don't think that's true. But, but that's what he said. <laughs> yeah. I think he um, thinks it was true. Yeah. The point is it was a revealing comment because that's how he operates. Yeah, and- I think that is how he operates. Uh, and as somebody who argued that he was not a great idea during the primaries, thought that for a long time, I, I will not concede that he's like uniquely cynical in politics. That is not the case. Well, I- uh, He's more open about it. But he's not uniquely cynical. So he's honestly cynical, is what yeah, you're saying. I mean, he he's he says that he's cynical, <laughs> but yeah. I think there's there are plenty of operators out there that are maybe not at that level. I, I mean, I, I mean, the you Clintons, say, kind are of you a, kidding? He, I think that he is a, a savant at mining these cultural issues and at understanding the modern media environment. Yes. Uh, I mean, he. You know, uh, I said the other day that he's Pavlov and we're all the dogs. You know, I mean, he knows. He 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 seeks reaction and he generally gets it. Yeah. Um, oh no, he he can send people reeling. That's what he does. We'll get back to him. Yeah. More about you. <laughs> um, so you came to Washington, worked for the Heritage Foundation, started this blogosphere. Now I will say, for a young woman looking to find a place that would be more hospitable to conservative writing, I'm not sure. Washington D.C. would necessarily be the no, place but I just was like, let's let's go full ideological, right? And I was always interested. I was I had not always, but like from a younger age than most people, was interested in policy, and was interested in why certain things worked and why certain things didn't. Um, and so, a think tank seemed like a good place to learn some stuff, and to I mean, just get to the lay of the land on things that I had not. Um, taken in in college or, or what have you. And I didn't specifically study politics or policy in college. Uh, so I thought a, a think tank would be a good place for that. And I ended up, you know, just sort of paying my dues and editing a journal for a bit um, while I was there and uh, and did, you know, pick up sort of the lay of the land on policies. And I didn't always fall where the Heritage Foundation fell on things. I'm sometimes more of a Reason Magazine kind of gal. but uh, But I think I... I learned a lot about what the parameters are of these discussions. And became in the process kind of a, a, a go-to conservative voice. Um, were you surprised to find yourself in that position? You, you, you were pretty quickly someone who uh, was popping up on, in various places. Yes, I was, I, it was a couple years after I got to Washington, but it was about the 2006 election that I first started doing some TV. And I was... I was I was quite conscious of the fact that I was young, although I had been, you know, following politics and very into politics for a long time. Um, in fact, read the uh, read the entire Star Report on the computer lab computer in my freshman year. That's hardcore, uh, dorm. right there. <laughs> yeah, I guess literally. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, quite. Um, actually, more people are interested in that than the normal uh, political document. Uh, but I had been, you know, interested in following politics for a long time. Had a fairly good education in these things. But was conscious of the fact that I was young and I don't, you know, want to sort of overstep my bounds. Um, <laughs> in fact, I joke that the first time uh, I was on TV one time and they called me the next day to be on Larry King Live the day before the 2006 election. And I said, you know, I've only been on TV once, right? And uh, they're like, oh, so you want to do it? And I thought, I should say no. But you know what? This is Washington, D.C. And this town is built on young people doing things they're woefully unqualified for. <laughs> so I'm going to go for it. Um, 
and you know, with I try to keep a sense of humor and and understand that you know perhaps David Gergen had more experience with this than I did. Uh, but you know, if you have chemistry with some hosts and and you can act like a normal person on TV, it turns out they continue to ask you back. Um, and you know, if you don't crash and burn and do something super irresponsible, yeah, and <laughs> then you become w- president, w- which which can happen. We've yes. s- we've seen that happen too. Um, I want to talk to you about something that's not easy to talk about, which is I want to talk to you about your your husband, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jake Brewer, who's known to many people in the Obama world. He worked right. in the White House. Um, you guys were, you know, you were like a, 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 a at first a situation comedy in the making. Yes, in the, sense, <laughs> the conservative woman, the liberal guy. Uh, tell me how that came about. Um, we met through friends sort of on a, on a panel, uh, in Washington, DC. It's so DC, like a, a panel about media and the election in 2008. Yeah, I'm telling you, man, it, it's, it writes itself. <laughs> I know. I know. So we went, we met on that panel, um, and sort of chatted, but didn't really connect. In fact, um, I think he thought we connected and I, I didn't apparently. And, uh, and so we met up again a year Listen, later I on another panel. I had a lot of those pan- experiences. <laughs> I must say we met up again on another panel a year later and started started dating. But we had we had mutual friends. Um, like as I, you know, I grew up with all liberals, so I have like a huge you, number you, of you friends tra- across tra- the spectrum. Liberals, huh? I do, I do. Uh, and so that was I always had you know overlapping social circles with different ideological groups and different activist groups. Um, and so we had friends in common, and you know we started dating and. I think we are, our ideologies are sort of a symbol for how people view politics in this way, sort of emblematic, in that I am a libertarian conservative, and he uh, he was a centrist Democrat, essentially, like a pragmatic centrist Democrat, except on a couple issues where we had our crazy town, you know, indulge your crazy on a couple things. So the world saw us as super far right and super far left, but if you actually talk to the two of us, we were really kind of hybrids that were not that far from each other um, in the middle. And I think that's a that's sort of emblematic of how we view politics, when well, in fact a lot of people is, are closer you, together than it's, that. It's really um, distressing because it's as if you, you, should not, you should not have friends, you should not socialize, you, yes. should, not, uh, uh, you should not marry outside the faith the faith being <laughs> yeah that's your a, party it's it, it's kind of crazy yeah i i think it's unhealthy and look it's you're not obligated to date and marry somebody who you fundamentally disagree with on some really important things right you don't have to put yourself through that but i do think uh opening yourself up to the idea that people who believe different things um can enrich your life uh, can make you better at communicating what you communicate. Uh, you know, it was not always easy and, to be, and or, and may be really good people. Oh you know? yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, that's but the, that's a, the but that's obvious the thing, benefit, you know. Right. I mean, but 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 really, you know, this whole it's not obvious anymore. I know that's the problem. No, it isn't. You know, um, uh, I think the assumptions that we make about each other uh, are really, really um, kind of perverse in that. Uh, you know, the assumption is if you if you're a Trump supporter, you're a toothless, ignorant racist. Right. If you're if you're a, a, a Trump opponent, that somehow you're, you know, an elite. You're an a fit uh, America hater. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah. but but anyway, but you guys got you guys got past that. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was not always easy. And there were times that we had serious disagreements um about policy but we would try to put it aside and and focus on other things but we we did fundamentally have agreements on how we would raise kids and how what a family looked like and um and so those were the important things even if you argued about whether to watch fox or msnbc (laughs) yes well actually uh we didn't watch a ton of cable news because it was just like we could i mean you could do he, it right there. He had there. the real thing in you the house. You could do it like, right there, live. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, sure, and you know, he loved he loved being married to somebody who was like, literally trained to debate on a on the fly. Uh-huh. Um, maybe not the greatest uh, the greatest feature in a spouse, but um, <laughs> but, keeps things lively. Yes. So, um, in 2015, uh, you lost him. Yes. And I, t- how did? Tell me about that. Um, so he passed away on a Saturday in 
September, he was on a uh, charity bike ride. And I don't know the details because I've never wanted to know the details. But um, it was... You weren't there. No, it was a charity race. I was down in North Carolina with my family. uh, And, you know, something went wrong and car plus bike. uh, And I found out about it down in Durham when I was on my way or I, I got in the car to come back and up you had once one, I one child we had one pregnant we had one child another. and I was seven months pregnant with yeah. our second yes um our first was two and she was in DC which was one of the weirder things about that day is that I had to drive four hours before I could reunite uh-huh. with her after I had gotten the call from a state so you drove yourself back up no my parents did i was down there with my parents and my co-author and best friend guy benson uh we just happened to be if something like this is going to happen to you that was the perfect group of people to be with um and what what someone called and yes some i i don't know who it was i assume a policeman or a or a trooper it was somebody in law enforcement uh called to inform me and uh we were in the car and we had been racing back to hopefully go to the hospital. And I just told my dad, like, well, we don't have to race. So, um, which is sort of a brutal way to communicate that, but I was in a place. Yeah. Um, and then I, I spent, I think I've said, looking back, it's been three years now. So if I, if I speak about this in a way that sounds very no, casual. You, can, you know what? You have the right to speak um, about it any way you want to or not. Yeah. You know? uh, but I think, Looking back, I think any denial that existed was that four hours in the car. That was it. I, was, I did sit in that car and think for the entire way back, maybe when I get out there, there will just be some mistake. Yeah. It was a very short conversation with this law enforcement officer who I don't even know wh- who he was with. Uh, and like, maybe there's just some sort of mix up. And then once I got to the house to reunite with my daughter and sort of figure out what we were going to do next I thought you know what this is real don't this is you're stepping out of this car into a new way of life don't pretend that it's something else um so how does one do that (laughs) I don't know I just I mean I I guess it's a bad question you know I've had a few things in my life and people say well gee how do you deal with that it's like well what else can you do? Yeah, I mean that's I'm, that was the approach was simply, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and I did I made myself some rules. Um, I think it helped to be pregnant because I had somebody I had not only a, a toddler to take care of, which was important, but there were a thousand people around who could have shouldered that burden for me. I, obviously, I felt responsibility for her um, and to keep her feeling safe. Uh, but then I had an unborn child that. Like, you can't mess this up, man. Like, this is a traumatic situation, but you need to eat, you need to drink, you need to take care of yourself. And so uh, for a couple days there, I was just whatever pistachios or pecans or whatever protein I could, you know, just have to say that I ate something that day. I did. I made myself get up in the morning. How'd you explain it? I'm sorry. Go Go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. How'd you explain it to your daughter? Uh, luckily I did not have to, she was young enough, um, that she, she couldn't really grasp it. She was just, she had just turned two and she was pre-verbal mostly. She just had a couple of words really. Um, so it was a while of, you know, she, she attended the funeral, but kind of played outside on the lawn. It was, you know, it was a, she didn't really know other than that there were, so many people around that she loved. So in that way, it was very comforting for her. And he was out of town a lot. He worked out of town a lot. So there was a there was a moment about two or three weeks in that hit me like, oh, he's not just on a business trip. Um, and I think it did her a little bit too. And so I always I always talked about him. I made myself talk about him to her, um, even if I wasn't explicitly explaining what was going on. But I wanted her to be able to retain any memory she had and I didn't want to in a toddler's life if you stop talking about someone for a month that that can go out of their head so I made myself talk about him to her we prayed about him we talked to God about him uh just to try and keep whatever she had alive and actually she dug up 
in the two years after that, dug up at least two memories that I didn't definitely did not reinforce for her that are real, um, that she has of him. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, you talk about, uh, praying. How much did faith help you? A lot. Uh, it was, it was really praying was how I did not succumb to anxiety because when you're in that situation, I mean, I would, I would just look down in the crib at my two-year-old and my big old pregnant belly. And I would be like, I mean, this is literally horrific. This is horrific. What is happening? And it would just, you know, your mind starts turning and you can't sleep. And, and my ticket out of that was I'm going to talk to God and I'm going to, I would pray. I wrote a prayer afterwards that I prayed all the time that I still pray with my daughters. Um, a couple of verses that I would just repeat when I was feeling anxious. Um, and just sort of the hope or the knowledge, whichever way, uh, you want to see it, uh, that there was a bigger plan for my life and that, uh, I had helped to get through this. Um, even if it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is what a leap of faith is. Um, (laughs) Because it's hard to know, it's hard to say there's justice and, you know, there's a just plan. Yeah. Uh, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm sure there were times that I was angry, of course, uh, going through this and like mad at, mad at God and like, why would you do this to us? Um, but I, it's part of my personality and whatever uh, and, and my faith that I, that was not the principal feeling I had. It was more like okay, you've done, this is what's happened. Now you got to help me. <laughs> sort of my, my position with God at that moment was like, okay. Yeah. How did, and how, how, how did it change you? And, and how are you guys doing? Um, we are doing extremely well. I think, I think we're doing better. And, and really, I should say, uh, both strangers and friends and family alike we're all so incredibly supportive of us. Um, not like with, with donations, uh, to help for my kids future, uh, with ways that they help just with my family. I have a neighbor who right after Jake died, just started mowing my lawn and he's never stopped. He just like, and by the way, this is a good um, tip for people who are in a crisis situation. If you want to help them, if you just step up and take something off their plate, they ain't going to be mad at you, right? Like, so people worry about stepping over bounds, but when people are in crisis, if you say to them, what can I help you with? They don't know. So one of the things, if there is something simple like Mm -hmm. that, that you can take off their plate, that can be a really cool way to help people. Um, A lawn service or a laundry service or housekeeping or something. Um, Because when you're in that place, you don't have the capability of doing those things. Um, So a lot of people just helped us out so much in the, in the early going when I was, you know, I had a lot of trouble. Um, but I think within a year after that, we were doing better than I would ever have imagined. I, my second child was the kindest baby that ever babied. And it was so important because I think I, I might've gone crazy had she been a really tough baby. Um, but she was just the sweetest newborn. Maybe that's she, an answered prayer, right? No, there. that's, I mean, I was like, thank you. Like this is, and the labor was, smooth i mean hurt like hell but it was smooth and uh and she was healthy and so that part i was so blessed um and we're doing we're doing well now um they're with me on this trip and yeah. we're uh, getting geared up for halloween yeah. which was always a a big thing for our family so yeah we're having a blast i'm going to ask a question that um that's hard to ask uh but um the idea that the that that your uh that your second child uh never will know yeah and that Jake'll never know what happened I know it's kids. um it's very strange I al- I almost forget sometimes because um I'll refer to Jake and me and the kids but Jake was never here when we had kids. Jake was only here when we had a kid, right? So, but I forget because he's obviously her father and he's part of the whole picture. Now, she also talks about him because we talk about him and we pray about him and she knows his name and she knows what he looks like and all of that. And um, he also, uh, 
I had an ultrasound at like 20, 24, 26 weeks, 26 weeks, I think, something like that. Um, and he died when I was 30 or 31 weeks pregnant, 32 weeks pregnant. So about six weeks in between there. Uh, and at that ultrasound, I did not want to know if it was a boy or a girl. Uh, I didn't know with either kid. But I said, you know what, just put it in an envelope in case I want to know later, right? I told the, the ultrasound uh, technician. And she forgot by the time she got to that part of it. So she didn't tell Jake to look away. And she wrote what it was. And so I he looked, knew. And I looked at him and was like, do you know? And he was like, yep. And I was like, well, that's quite it. I mean, he has a very good poker face. So he knew. Um, he knew. And I like the idea that he probably had thoughts and dreams and maybe name ideas for her. We didn't discuss any of that because he didn't want to tell me. Yeah. It was a girl. Um, and then a weird thing, uh, he went to Camp David with President Obama uh, maybe the week before he died, I want to say. And he came back with three bags of presents from the uh, yeah, from, from the, the gift, gift shop, shop there. there yeah. And they were for Christmas for like all of our relatives. And I was like, this is so wonderful. You took so much work off my plate getting these super cool Christmas presents for all these people. Um and like very unlike him to buy something to do that that early. Uh, but it was such a cool opportunity. So he brings those home. He puts them at the bottom of the stairs. They stayed there for what a week, six days. And, and then he died. And they sat there for a long time. And people were taking care of me. And somebody took them to the basement. And then it was Christmas time. And I was like, oh, I think we have Christmas presents from Jake. So I went downstairs. And I got all the bags. And I pulled out all the stuff. And there was a pink onesie from Camp David for mm. my littlest daughter. And had I ever looked in those bags before I had her, I would have known <laughs> what was going on. But he got her a bib and a onesie. So she has actual gifts from her dad that were meant for her. Well, I, uh, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this is um, thinking about you and what that experience must have been like. And, um, well, enough said about that, I yeah. think. Well, it's, I, I, even I look back on it and think, did that really happen to me? I mean, yeah. <laughs> when, it, when it was happening, it felt weirdly like a movie. Like, this is very, it was just so extreme, the, all the circumstances. Um, and now I still look back and go, gosh, that, like, that really happened to me. And then I had that baby and, and yeah. now I'm doing this on my own. And, and, I, and since then, by the way, um, I have collected a group of uh, powerful and strong and brave women who have had similar things happen to them. Because I think when you Google pregnant widow, you come up with me. Yeah. Um, so people reach out to me when they're in these terrible situations because not that many people have this particular thing happen to really them. it's really important because so, uh, when you go through as... Uh, as you know, I mean, I have other experiences, but when you go through something unimaginable, you feel as if no one else could ever have gone through this, that you're completely alone in certain ways, and that this is, and it's comforting to people to know that others have come, gone through that, yeah. and to know how they've gotten through it, and to know that they did get through it. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's, 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 I think, great that you're so open about what yeah, you've it been is, through. It's certainly, it's an odd role to fill, but I have learned through this that part of my processing was to tell my own story and to sort of take control of my own story. Um, even very shortly after Jake died, I gave a speech, like a eulogy, but it was out of a memorial service and it ended up being, you know, this 20 minute speech, it's online somewhere. But where I said, you know, these are the things, this is how we're going to live our life. Um, we're not going to be afraid and we're not going to be just signals of sadness to everyone. I said, don't, don't let my family be a sad trombone when we walk into a room. Cause what we happened, what happened to us is very sad, but we are not sad people. Um, and setting those goals for myself in public, um, helped me live up to them and helped everyone else help me live up to them. And so I have been glad, so glad that that part of it has helped other people perhaps to do some of the same things in their crisis situations. 
Let me move from the uh, sacred to the profane and return to <laughs> no problem <laughs> our current political uh, environment. We, um, we we were getting at this a little bit earlier, but uh, I'm sure that there are many things that the president has done that you, as a conservative, uh, applaud. Um, you know, you the the tax cuts and deregulation, uh, perhaps the court appointments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there are things that he does that make you deeply uncomfortable. And you talk to a lot of Republicans, and they acknowledge that. And even yep. in you see these polling, polling and focus groups now, and people saying, "Yeah, I don't really like him, right? But uh, you know, I but I like the things he's uh, he's doing. Uh, how do, how does one compartmentalize? And is there sort of a Faustian bargain involved in that? Yeah, I think. To some extent, yes, I mean, there is, and it's something that people are openly acknowledging. I think there is, you can never lose sight of the fact that, and I think fairly, people looked at 2016 and thought, well, these are not great options, right? And that's that was the sort of the story of that election. Yeah. Um, and it's not as if, uh, obviously, this is a much more theatrical version of it, but people have been holding their nose and voting for somebody for a long time, right? Um and you take what you can get. Uh, I do think that, like, for somebody who believes in, like, for instance, that entitlement spending is a problem and we should work on that, <laughs> and, like, that free trade is really good for everyone, uh, things like yeah, that. That is not, uh, that's yeah. not part of the Trump. No, no, no. Things like that that have just disappeared. Um, I don't think that's a, that's a service uh, to the party or to the country. Um, and I also think that, Despite the fact that you're you're getting a lot, and this is what I express to you know Trump supporters, and there is, I have, I have an understanding of exactly why they made that bargain, right? I couldn't get there myself, um, but I do understand it, and I think I think there's a generational gap. Um, many conservatives my age um, who are ideological and who who are interested in attracting new people to the party think, okay, well. You can win this way for a little while, but how long can you win this way? Well, and how many people really, are you scaring away? And right. that's, Especially when you consider the demographics of the country yes. and the changing demographics of the country. Uh, this, this is, you know, we saw this, the Republican Party autopsy in 2013 of the last right. election. And the idea and, and the, the crux of it was the party needed to expand its reach. What... Trump's theory is just the opposite, which is the party needs to maximize its base, even if it's at the expense of expanding its reach. Yes, and it and it worries me, and I think it's an existential worry for for the party and for winning national elections, and for like because I believe in these things, I believe that they are good for all the people. That's that's what I'm here for. Um, I think that these things serve all the people, uh, and so. The idea that you would just hang up the idea of communicating with people who are different from you and who believe different things from you is sort of anathema to me, even though I know that obviously politics does some of that to some extent, regardless, because you have to distribute resources. But um, that being said, he also, (laughs) and sometimes I I don't get it, but Trump has like sometimes more appeal than a Mitt Romney in certain demographics that you would not expect Hispanic men, blue collar men, even blue collar minority men, that that you're like, wait, what is going on? He's doing almost nothing to reach these people and almost seemingly trying to push them away, and yet the numbers are not as bad as a more typical Republican, right? And I think it's I think it's sort of the blue collar connection part of it. Um, so it's a strange cultural stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a strange I mean, how uh, quickly um, he shifted from empathy or expressed empathy for Dr. Ford to uh, standing up for aggrieved men, who, right. you know, and there, clearly that was a, a calculation on his part that this is where my base is and this is where I'm going to go to win this fight. Yeah. And I think he also, any crowd he's in, and somebody yeah. made this point, I think I'm cribbing this point from somebody, so I don't want to take full credit, um, no, but that when he said the thing about supporting her, he was in front of a group of reporters. Mm-hmm. So he's feeding off them and this, he's giving them what they want to hear. And then he goes elsewhere and he gives them what they want to hear, which is one yeah. of the things that, um, 
Well, those are pretty much the only the only two groups he speaks to are right. reporters and an adoring crowd. Yes. There's nothing in between. No, no, and they want very different things, and so you get different answers. But I I contend that like his <laughs> he's never he's never able to keep a as I say a lid on his id for too long. Like he yeah. can he can do it for about a week, and then the real deal is going to come out. What uh, what do you anticipate for the midterm elections? I think. Um, I don't want to be queen conventional wisdom, but I, I think probably Democrats will take the House. Uh, I think in the Senate, um, Republicans will perhaps, I think I think they will keep the Senate, maybe even add some seats. The, as you know, the map was historically good for Republicans. So you could look at it as a lost the opportunity. Senate, the, Senate, the Senate map. The Senate map. The Senate map. The House map is, is, as it turns out, in the era of Trump, yes. uh, not particularly good for Republicans, right. especially after all these retirements. No, I mean, yeah, specifically the Senate yeah. map uh, is very friendly. So you could look at it as a, a blown opportunity to pick up a bunch of seats, which is it, it is, although midterms are tough. Um, so I think they'll, they'll likely be okay there, partly because I do think that people underestimate the extent to which people on the other side of the Kavanaugh issue were galvanized by how that went. Yeah. Because... The fact is there are diminishing returns for enthusiasm for Democrats at this yeah. point. You can only go up so far, whereas Republicans just have to find parity, right? Um, and so I think they came closer, and that'll play better in, in states versus these little, these, you well, know, Well, particularly those states that Trump and, carried, uh, and you've got four or five senators who were in states that he right. carried by, uh, by substantial margins. Uh, what... Um, uh, now, one of the questions I think that is not entirely clear is whether that effect would have happened uh, anyway, whether these states would go native at the end, which is generally right. what come back home, right? What happens? And uh, you're absolutely right that the enthusiasm gap is needs to be closed for Republicans to do well. But the fact is, one of the reasons Republicans do well in midterms is Democrats tend or not to low, vote right. in midterms. So if Democrats are now voting at the same level as Republicans, that creates some issues for them. So let's just say it plays out the way you su suggest it will, and I agree with you. Right. That's the likely outcome. What's the next two years going to be like? Oh, Lord, if I know. Um, exhausting? I <laughs> well, I think that's a given. I mean, these last two years haven't been a day, a day at the beach in that regard. So. No, I mean, and, and that to me is sort of the, the defining feeling. And look, I know that there are plenty of people who support Trump who are exhilarated by the way he tweaks people and the way he messes with people and the way that, but there is a, there's a substantial number of people in this country who are exhausted by the, the churn of everything. And I think part of that is the symbiotic relationship of 24 hour news cycle and mm -hmm. Trump. There's a reason he got, what is it? $2 billion of yeah. earned media. No, no, he's, um, he's a genius. At, at yeah. That. So we kind of, and again, everybody gets spun up. Every story is an 11. No story can possibly be a 5 out of 10. You know, they all have to be an 11. Uh, and I think it just wears on people. And mm -hmm. a lot of people, even frankly, even people who are supporters of the president, sort of tune out at some point and pick up here and there what's going on. And um, I don't know what that means for society. I find that I have to take very serious breaks from it. Uh, and I have my family to hang out with and and separate by, you know, going to a children's museum or something. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't mean to give you zero predictions, but that, that strikes me as what animates the Trump era for me, almost more than anything else, is this sort of frantic pace of everything. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. That we can be sure of. <sighs> yes. Because as soon as the curtain rings down on campaign 2018, campaign 2020 will be in full swing. And uh, Off to the races. no rest for the weary, weary voter, but uh, but it'll be interesting. I certainly will. Mary Catherine Ham, thank you so much. Thank you for having for me for being here at the Institute of Politics. We didn't get to the issue of diversity of opinion on campus, but we believe in it here, and uh, and you are uh, adding to the the discussion. And we appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you guys doing an awesome job of that uh, outside of me. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.